Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm proud to be joined by Adam Sisman, a very distinguished biographer, most recently of John le Carré, but who in this case is more of an anthologist and editor. He's about to publish the second volume of the, well, not collected, but the selected Selected, letters exactly, yes. of Patrick Paddy Lee Fermor called More Dashing, after the first one was called, I think, Dashing for the Post, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly, which is how he often signed off his letters. He always seemed to be writing in a rush. And indeed, in some of the letters, he actually describes the postman drumming his fingers as Paddy desperately adds a last postscript. That's sort of writing to the moment, isn't it? Now, this kind of overlap is not a sort of second volume in sequence, is it? I mean, it's. No. So, was it something you didn't anticipate when you put together the first one and then, as it were, you realised there was this appetite for them? And no, on the contrary, I did anticipate. And I, uh, for example, I realised that there was a magnificent sequence of letters between Paddy and Lady Diana. Cooper. One could, in fact, have made a volume solely out of those, just as there was a volume of, of letters between Paddy and Debo Devonshire in Tearing Haste, published in 2008, I think. So there, there were enough letters in that correspondence to make another volume of a similar size. And I didn't want the first volume to be distorted by having too many letters of any one type. So I was already thinking then, putting letters aside and thinking, we'll have that in the second volume. And indeed, the first volume then produced, as it were, what is the right metaphor? I don't want to say worms coming out of the woodwork. But a, 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 suddenly, a whole load of people wrote to me saying, I've got a letter from Paddy, I've got it. In fact, they still are doing, and I'm, I'm now wondering whether to do a third <laughs> volume. volume three. Because he wrote so many letters, he just... I mean, I estimate in the book that he must have written somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 letters in his lifetime. And in each of these volumes, there's about 150 letters. So you can see they're very much the, the, the cream from the, the top of... The... Yes, but it's, it is kind of, in a sense, I mean, that, that in itself is something slightly extraordinary and slightly of a vanished age, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've always been concerned myself with this idea that the collected letters, you know, you think of, you know, Amos and Larkin or Lowell and Bishop or, you know, all these sort of correspondences, uh, Ted Hughes letters, for instance, that have become a really important part of a kind of writer's life and afterlife. They must be on the way out of the literary genre, do you think? I suspect they are on their way out of the literary genre. I mean, one practical reason why Paddy wrote so many letters is that he lived in a... Well, first of all, he, he didn't have a fixed address for the first almost 50 years of his life. And then when he did have a fixed address, it was in a very remote part of the Peloponnese, where not many people came to visit. And telephoning was, at least for the first 20 or 30 years, very difficult. So in, to keep in touch with his friends, he was forced to write to them and anyway he liked to write to them and sometimes writing his letters became as it were like a draft for a book for example his letters that he wrote on a trip to the Andes were made into a book or the letters that he wrote to his future wife from a series of monastic retreats that he went to became a book and one of his earliest books so he tries out his ideas in his letters I actually think that one should perhaps I'm anticipating something you may say later on but one should consider his letters as part of his oeuvre well obviously for you know people of a certain generation he is a sort of towering figure he's there are a lot of people probably under 30 who would you know fairly sketchy about who this guy was I mean because he was a sort of even a distinguished travel writer. He famously kidnapped a Nazi. But how would you describe him? I mean, how would you explain his sort of place in the history of letters? Because he's... I'm not sure I'm equipped to explain his place in the history of letters, except that as a letter writer, he's one of the best. I mean, John 
John Julius Norwich, the, the dear late John Julius, who was better equipped than I, than I am to judge, puts him right up there with the very best, with, with Byron or Madame de Stael or other great letter writers of the past, Horace Walpole. I think that the sheer volume of his letters and the fact that he became so practised and so adept in them and the personality, the very sunny, sweet-natured, boyish personality that comes through them is what makes them so pleasurable to read and makes them as readable in 2018 as they must have been in 1950 or 1960 or whenever they were written. Now, since the publication of the first volume, you said letters from others have started to kind of come out of the woodwork. Have you found, you know, new lovers or new, you know, comrades in arms? Alas, no new lovers, though some more letters to the old lovers, some of them rather frisky. But, I mean, for example, there's a very amusing letter I found to Elizabeth David in an archive I hadn't looked at before in an American university. But also people have written to me. So, for example, his French translator wrote to me and Paddy wrote some interesting letters to him about the difficulties of translating works between French and English, and, and he was very concerned about that. He himself, when he was younger, he tried to translate a novel. He had translated that, yeah. works from French to English, and he was concerned about translation both ways and about what gets lost and, and what can be preserved. And his letters are very interesting on that score on, on, and, and on, on translating Proust and other great writers. For uh, someone, who, for someone who sort of got kicked out of school and you know, led a sort of slightly dilettantish career, he was very, very learned, wasn't he? He was very erudite, yes. I, I mean, I think you can tell that in some ways he doesn't have the apparatus of higher education in the sort of very analytical powers that perhaps a university education gives you, but he certainly was enormously widely read. One of the reasons is that he took with him on his on his great tour the Oxford Book of English Verse, which he could quote great chunks of from memory. But he read constantly throughout his life, and I don't know, probably read for two or three hours a day right through the rest of his life. I think of the very first letter here, which is, I think, one written by him younger even than the first letter in the previous mm. book, where he's writing to the, is it the younger sister of a friend. Isn't That's it? right, yes. And Biddy. he's saying, I mean, it just sort of drops in, I've just opened, you know, been to the bookshop or opened the post or something, and he's got, he's got a sort of entire gibbon, and, you know, it's a gibbon the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and there's, there's something else equally. And he loves discussing... He's 19, isn't yes. he? You know, yes, yeah, yes, right. yes, yes, yes. And he, and he loves discussing these works with other people who've read them in a... In a and, 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 and some of his correspondents shared that, not Deborah Devonshire, who he... It was a great sort of joke between them that she never read a book and particularly never read his books. She'd he'd say to her from time to time, they're really quite good, you know. You really ought to try them. But she never did. No, I think least. you say the, the, relation, the collected letters of Diana Cooper are sort of livelier because she was a, she, she a Deb- better writer. She was a better writer, really, than Deborah. I mean, Deborah was quite amusing in her way, partly by acting dumb, but Diana was a, altogether a more formidable and educated person. And so Paddy raises his game correspondingly. Do you feel that the personality projects in the letters is the real him? Or is it a persona? I mean, is he... Not entirely. I mean, what one of the things that's clear is that he did suffer from periods of depression and feeling that he... I don't mean to say that he felt that he was a fraud, but he felt that he was always unsure about the praise that he received. And, and, and it's also unsure about the credit he received as a war hero. I mean, the, his most famous operation that you alluded to earlier, the kidnapping of the German general who was in command of the, the uh, occupying forces in Crete, General Kreiper, led to some pretty horrible reprisals, and ma- many Cretans were rounded up and shot. Was it worth it? And that went on troubling Paddy all his life. 
What I think happened is that one of the things that, that motivates Paddy in writing the letters is reaching out. He seems to kind of psychologically imagine the character, the personality, the person that he's writing to, and that in itself kind of makes a kind of form of contact. And, and you feel this in the letters. You feel that he's reaching out to them and, in, in a way, cheering himself up by doing so. So it's sort of solitary and gregarious at the same time. Yes, yes, but it is, it is more than just communication. It's a kind of form of engagement. It's of warmth. And as I say, that's what makes the letters so so enjoyable. Do you think he's better in his letters than he is in his published books? You sort of seem to hint. I do, actually, <laughs> yes. I mean, I feel that some of his books are a little bit overwritten. He did rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. He was an absolute nightmare as a, of an author. There are... Penelopizing, I think. Penelopizing, yes, yes. That's so like uh, the, George Seferis, his Greek friend, the, the Nobel Prize winner, wrote to Paddy's partner and, and future wife, Joan, saying, I fear he's too much penelopizing. And that meant undoing every night what he'd done in the morning. But in fact, and also endlessly rewriting. So poor old Jock Murray, who published all his work, had to deal with manuscripts, which are the like of which I've never seen before. But the, the, the point is really... He was always that, that apologising the, to Chop Murray as well, wasn't he? He saying, was I can't, can't see you because yes. I still haven't delivered your manuscript. He had a real anxiety about finishing and a, a difficulty with finishing. And of course, he never finished the great trilogy of works about his walk across Europe that begins with A Time of Gifts, continues with Between the Woods and the Water. And, and, and that started, it was in the run-up to the war, wasn't it, that he first... In the mid-30s, yeah. he set off... I can't remember if he was still 17 or just 18, but he was at the, that sort of age. He'd not long before been expelled from his public school for being discovered holding hands with the greengrocer's daughter. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem that bad to me, but and they later were very pleased to welcome him back. But anyway, he set off on this romantic, and, and, and it is very much a romantic, great trudge, as he called it, going to the place that he called Constantinople. But along the way, encountering and witnessing a Europe that was soon to be swept away, first of all by Nazism and then by communism. A Europe, in some ways, was not much changed for centuries, and, you know, that reached back to the Middle Ages. And the well, Europe... That links him to Byron in another way, doesn't it? That's well, it does, yes, it does. And, 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 and pa- Hellenistic, romantic, and also an ability... I mean, he loved hobnobbing with quality and, and stayed in lots of schlosses, but he was also at home with ordinary, simple people and sometimes slept under the stars and sat round campfires with gypsies or travelled with bargees on the, on the Rhine. I mean, I address in my introduction to my book whether or not Paddy was a snob, and I think if he was a snob, he was a snob of the most innocent kind that he may have perhaps been rather more interested than he should have been in aristocracy, but he didn't look down on people. He Actually, wasn't... you say, oh, the only proper snobbery who indicted for is his views of the Queen were maybe too... Yes, yes, In yes. other respect, he was kind of healthily teasing. But... Yes, well, he did love the company of duchesses too, there's no doubt at all about it, and and, and some of his best letters are written to all these grand ladies, you know, like like, like Debo Devonshire, like Diana Cooper, and he was very interested in genealogy too, not quite so interested as his friend Ian Moncrief, uh, <laughs> whose interest was <laughs> ridiculous, but, never, you know, but nevertheless, perhaps more interested than most. But uh, as I say, he was also the kind of person who could walk into a simple taverna and soon have everybody in the taverna singing. Even in 2016, when I went to his house and met people in the village, they remembered him with a, ordinary people with a tear in their eye. You know, Paddy, oh, we so miss him. There's a very, you know, he was a man who inspired great affection. I mean, there seems to be something sort of faintly contradictory in this thing. On the one hand, he was 
complete perfectionist. He was penelopizing. On the other hand, he was constantly apologising for being late. He was constantly distracting himself, presumably from the real work of producing his books by writing these letters. I mean... Yes, and I think that in, in a way, perhaps posthumously, I'm resolving that dilemma because I think that if we consider the letters to be part of his oeuvre, there isn't a problem. And the fact is, at least my belief is, that the letters are more spontaneous and fresher than some of his overworked published prose. That's not to say that, say, The Time of Gifts isn't a wonderful book. It is a wonderful book and it's comparable in its feeling of a young man's experience with, say, Laurie Lee's As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Actually, they're very comparable and they, and they set off about the same time, only they came from slightly different backgrounds. But nevertheless, he does give you that feeling of what it's like to be young and not caring. It's very refreshing to read. Yes, is he, the thing is you say, he's constantly apologising. Do you think he felt apologetic? And do you think he was tormented by the fact that he didn't write back to people on time, that he was... Oh, yes, I think, no, I think that's, that, was, that was genuine. I mean, part of it was politeness. But I think he was always worrying about not finishing and about... I mean, he was... Long after everybody else had given up hope that he would finish the, the trilogy of The Great Trud, he was still writing letters to people saying, I'm going to get down to it, I've just got to clear my desk. And poor Paddy by this time was suffering from tunnel vision. He could hardly see the papers on his desk and nobody thought that he was going to finish. But he was still worrying about it into his, you know, 10th decade. In a way, it's, it's sad because you feel that he should have been able to rest and enjoy his last years rather other than being nagged all the time by this urgency and this this feeling of a task not completed. Now you say that he showed, you know, the less attempting to entertain, attempting to kind of project warmth and appetite for life, you know, he, he showed a bit more of himself in his letters to Joan, his wife. What was their relationship like? Because they were apart an awful lot, weren't they? I mean, They were apart an awful lot and they had a very unusual relationship. They didn't get married until, I mean, you referred to her as his wife, wife but I mean they'd been together for 20 years before he got married more than 20 years and they had what I think is generally described as an open relationship even after his marriage sometimes certainly Artemis Cooper says in her biography that Joan would sometimes give him money in order to go off and find a woman what give him money in order to travel to find a woman or for well to go off that night and find yes 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 and he had several perhaps more serious in a way he had several love affairs while he was living with Joan and certainly one of of the women who I've interviewed who's still alive, Lyndall Birch, Lyndall Passerini Hopkinson, as she now is, was astonished to find when she that when she went to visit Paddy and met Joan that Joan wasn't in the remotest bit jealous. She knew that Paddy had these love affairs and didn't mind. Why was that, do you think? Is that sort of aristocratic hauteur on her I part? Think she, she came from that posh bohemian world of the 1920s and 30s. I mean, she'd had lots of affairs. She'd been much pursued. She was a very beautiful woman. And although I don't think she had any affairs once she was with Paddy she understood that was the way things were and she also knew that he would always come back to her there is an element of the boy husband the boy lover and one of the things that sort of that's slightly odd is the fact that she is funding him all the time. He never had much money, and she's shelling out for him. Even he was always <laughs> funny, wasn't he, about the, about the fact he never had much money? He'd always say, yeah. you know, Captain Sponge has, you know, succeeded yes, again." Yes, Mr. Sponge. Yes, Mr. Yes, Sponge. Yes, yes. He, he, one of his favourite books was Mr. Sponge's Sporting Tour, the thirties uh, <laughs> book, and he would openly describe himself as Mr. Sponge. And indeed, he loved going to stay with Debo Devonshire at Lismore Castle or at uh, Chatsworth or whoever around a series of grand houses. He's very good at getting himself invitations and indeed singing for his supper. I mean, he would he would be entertaining. Some people found that irritating and it's certainly true that I have met people who found him objectionable. They, they thought he was a social climber and, and a sponge. 
Bunger. That's maybe true, but it, it, nevertheless, I don't think it comes through in his letters, or in his letters he seems to me innocent, essentially a sweet-natured person who is genuine. There's no deceit about him. There's a lovely quote, and I don't know who it's from, but maybe it's from him, about his appetite for life being like a, was it a sea lion throwing a bloater or something? There's a description of this. Oh, gosh, I've forgotten that one. <laughs> uh, but he could easily, yes. I mean, he was, you know, he did, in fact, compare himself with Byron, and he, and he swims across the Hellespont, as Byron did. But when Byron did, Byron was, I can't remember, in his 20s, I think. Yeah. When Patty did, he was 69. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should all end up that way. Anyway... Adam Sisman, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.